Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today, in person, in studio, is Marcus Gibson. He is a John and Daria Berry postdoctoral research fellow here at Princeton University's James Madison program and the director of the Princeton Initiative in Catholic Thought. He received his bachelor's degree in philosophy and ancient Greek from Duke University, graduating summa cum laude, and his master's and Ph.D., from the program in classical philosophy in the Department of Philosophy here at Princeton. He's taught courses in ancient philosophy at Princeton University and Rutgers University, and his current research focuses on the roles of reason and passion in human life at its best in the writings of Aristotle and of Thomas Aquinas. He returns to Madison's notes today to continue our journey through the Platonic Dialogues. Marcus Gibson, Welcome back to Madison's Notes, and welcome back to campus. Thank you so much, Nina. It's great to be back and good to be in person. Now, in the span of about 45 minutes, we are going to cover the entirety of Plato's Republic, which is not his longest dialogue. It's It's not, but it's certainly among the most substantial. It is. Um, Okay. No, what we're going to do today is focus on books eight and nine, uh, but let's start with a bit of an overview just of the Republic. What should we know about this dialogue? It's probably Plato's best-known work, and why is that? Yes. Uh, The Republic is about, as Socrates puts it at the start of the dialogue in the first book, you know, among the very greatest of questions, how we should live, uh, both individually and and together uh, in in community. Um, And for that reason, and because the way that Plato explores that question in the Republic takes him over the range of virtually every discipline and subject in philosophy that we can uh, imagine. Um, And because he explores those topics in such vivid and imaginative forms, um, think of all of the images and allegories and similes that might be familiar to some of our listeners, the great allegory of the cave, Mm -hmm. the simile of the sun, of the line, um, and the striking uh, and insightful arguments that Plato develops along the way in pursuit of the conclusions that he draws on these questions for all those sorts of reasons. Um, it's rightly, I think, captured the hearts and imaginations and the intellects of, of his readers ever since. Uh, it stands, if you like, maybe as sort of the, the high point, the midpoint of, of Plato's output. Most scholars agree that the Republic belongs to Plato's so-called middle period when hmm. um, you and I had talked about this in previous episodes. Um, Plato has departed from simply exploring more or less or depicting um, the historical Socrates' philosophical preoccupations, and he's, if you like, extended those ethical concerns into the sphere of metaphysics and has begun to develop views of his own um, in in great detail and and to great effect. Um, And the Republic kind of stands as uh, the great exemplar of that phase, if you like, in in Plato's writings, um, where he develops... um, 
what nowadays we usually call, just for shorthand and ease of convenience, his theory of forms. Nowhere, nowhere in the Republic does Socrates say, readers, I am now going to talk to you about the theory of forms. But nonetheless, um, he, he develops this metaphysics and this accompanying epistemology, this accompanying account of wisdom and virtue and of the happy life um, that we all remember Plato for. Um, and so in brief, that's that's... Some of those are some of the things, at least, which make the Republic such a such a striking and central piece of writing for Plato and for the Greek philosophical tradition and um, the subsequent Western philosophical tradition. Is is the dialogue unique in any ways? Not not just in the arguments being made. Of course, it's different from other dialogues in that way. But is the form of it unique? The structure, anything like that? One thing that struck me when I first began to read the Republic seriously is that its structure itself kind of dramatizes Plato's shift from sticking more or less closely to the historical Socrates. Mm. Um, I'm not going to say that the the so-called early dialogues are a perfect historical portrait where Plato prescinds from any of his own agenda. I don't mean that, but still, uh, the early dialogues do seem to stick more or less closely to the historical Socrates' own method and philosophical ethical preoccupations. And in the Republic, we get dramatized this shift from those early dialogues to Plato's own more mature speculations. I mean this. um, The first book of the Republic proceeds more or less like a typical early Socratic dialogue. We have um, a rather lovely scene setting, uh, a kind of dramatic frame in which Socrates goes down to the port of Athens, the port town of the Piraeus, very famously. Yesterday I went down to the Piraeus with Glaucon, the son of Ariston, to see the festival. Um, And then at the house of Cephalus, where he's invited, um, he he opens a discussion about the nature of justice. Oh, okay, a virtue and the question of what the nature of that virtue is. Familiar readers will know, okay, a typical Socratic dialogue. Um, Some potential definitions of justice get raised and get Uh, found wanting, as typical for Socrates. And then a sophistic uh, character intervenes. Again, this is somewhat familiar. Socrates and the sophists in Plato's dialogues sort of vying for the hearts and minds of the audiences in terms of who we ought to listen to when it comes to um, our intellectual life and the formation of our characters. Um, And then in this conversation back and forth with Socrates and Thrasymachus, the the sophistic character, about the nature of justice, but also about the desirability of justice versus injustice, yeah. about which of these qualities will make us happier people, better better human beings. Um, there's more conversation, vigorous disagreement, and then an impasse, aporia. All of this looks like an early Socratic dialogue. But then Socrates notices that he himself has been guilty of a kind of Uh, vain curiosity. He's been helping himself to every kind of question about justice, like someone at an all-you-can-eat buffet kind of eating indiscriminately, and that we should begin again. Uh, We should remember first to define the nature of justice, then then to examine its qualities, like whether justice is indeed intrinsically desirable, uh, preferable to injustice, no matter what. Um, That begins to signal a shift. And then in the second book, Um, Again, I I like to think of it as Plato sort of self-consciously depicting a transition from that early Socratic style of inquiry, which the first book encapsulates perfectly, to this much more wide-ranging and more rigorous 
defense of the idea that uh, justice is indeed always to be preferred over injustice, that justice is the quality that we should stick to, no matter what you put on the other side of the scales, mm-hmm. all of which is going to be defended in view of a particular philosophical conception of what justice is, how it fits into the whole of human life, and indeed the cosmic setting of human life. Um, that's what makes the Republic, if you like, a hinge in, in the Platonic writings, uh, to say nothing of the, the deep interest and uh, originality and um, kind of imaginative splendor of those central images and arguments uh, that many of us remember and admire in the Republic. I don't think we've talked about this before in any of our previous episodes on the dialogues. In rereading the Republic, I don't know if it's just this edition I'm using, which I should say is is the Cooper Bible. It's Plato's Complete Works, edited by John Cooper. Cooper does not have the names at each line of the speaker. So it requires actually some work to follow who's actually speaking. So again, I don't know if this is just the formatting which has caused this, but I found that it was at times difficult to keep track of who is saying what. Is this Adamantus? Is this Glaucon? Is this Socrates? And it all sort of fades away into one person. Yes. Plato. Yes. How do we separate Plato from Socrates? Can we? Should we want to? Yes. Um, That is a feature of the Greek, too. Uh, Some editions, uh, like the Reeve edition that I favor and, and that I like to use in teaching, um, does add a kind of helpful device. It does read like a script with with um, indications of, of the speaker. Um, but it's also, while we're talking about kind of the structure of the Republic, it's worth noting that the entirety of the Republic is, in fact, Socrates addressing an unnamed listener. Socrates reports the conversation that took place yesterday. In, right. in, that, in that opening word of, of the Republic. Um, and so it's all an indirect speech. Um, and, and as you say, one result of that is we can often lose track of what words are in whose voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as a further consequence, it can start to seem like the dialogue has faded away and what we're now reading is a kind of conversational treatise, but a treatise nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and in a way, that's, that might be a kind of happy uh, result because we should bear in mind that, um, of course, the, these aren't views that Socrates, that pardon me, uh, that Plato intends to put in the mouth of the historical Socrates. Although he has um, made use of the Socrates figure as the mouthpiece for his views at this point, um, it can be helpful for us modern readers to then remember that um, we're dealing with Plato forging his own path here, yeah. his own metaphysical path, so to speak, uh, and that can be helpful. But it can also send the reader back into more wrestling with the tangled net of the text, uh, which can can be a helpful thing, too. Yeah, which has been my experience. Um, Okay, like I said, we're going to focus, and in a minute we'll turn to books eight and nine. What's been going on in the first seven books? So, Marcus, you have a couple of minutes to tell us everything that has happened in the Republic (laughs) through the first seven books. I do, and uh, luckily I helped myself out by going at least through book one uh, (laughs) a little bit already. But uh, having prepared the way, let let me go on. Books then two through seven begin this more elaborate defense of justice as something that we ought to prefer to injustice. It's the quality by which we should govern our lives, regardless, again, of what you stack on the other side, regardless of what you uh, give to injustice. Um, It's framed at the start of book two as follows. Um, There are goods we welcome for themselves, 
their goods, we welcome for their downstream consequences or for what comes from them, um, but which we would, you know, intrinsically disprefer. And and uh, Glaucon, uh, Socrates' conversation partner, the example that they use is surgery. No one in their right mind would go in for surgery for its own sake, but we welcome surgery or or um, discipline, uh, medical discipline more generally, uh, for its downstream consequences. And then finally, there's another class of goods, uh, goods that we welcome both in their own right and for their downstream consequences. And the example we get there are things like health and sight. You know, we want these things for themselves, but we also love what comes from them. Um, and so the challenge is, well, where does, where does uh, justice fit in? And in particular, against the background of that framework, take justice, which is perceived to be injustice, and injustice, which is perceived to be justice. So give the reputation of justice to the unjust man and the reputation for injustice to the just man. Even under such conditions, the challenge is, should we prefer justice, and if so, why? And the whole of the republic that follows is meant to develop, again, a very rich and philosophically uh, sophisticated defense of the idea that we should prefer justice, even under such dramatic conditions. Um, this begins famously uh, by the construction of a regime which is going to instantiate justice. This is what um, readers of the Republic have come to call the city-soul analogy. Hmm. Um, Socrates says, if you're trying to figure out what's written on a very small inscription, it would be helpful if the same text was presented in a much larger inscription. So that the city and the soul and the justice that they manifest is meant to operate like that. Um, and so we get in books two through four, the end of, of book two through book four, um, a construction, an initial construction of a just regime from which we then identify the nature of justice and of the other cardinal virtues, those being moderation, courage, and wisdom. Um, the structure of the just city involves three parts, a ruling class, if you like, uh, their auxiliaries, and finally, um, those charged with the nourishment of the city, with the with providing the goods, the material goods that the city uh, depends on for its life, the craftspeople and farmers and the like. Um, Plato then, or Plato Socrates, identifies the cardinal virtues in the work of these three class classes as it goes well. Famously, the, the definition of justice that Socrates comes to is... Um, to put a little crudely, everyone minding their own business, mm -hmm. uh, but I think a little more high-mindedly, each doing his own, each one doing their own proper work, um, so that being a busybody or a meddler, getting into somebody else's work and trying, as it were, to breach in on others' um, rightful duties or offices turns out to be, for Plato, one of the, one of the cardinal instances or exemplary instances of injustice. But importantly, then, justice is a matter of these three parts, uh, a ruling part, an auxiliary part, kind of soldier police class, if you like, and, and, uh, and the craftsmen, the, the part of the farmers and craftsmen, those who provide for the material welfare of the city, each of the, these three parts, each doing its own work. And Plato analogizes uh, those three parts of the city to three parts of the soul, from which he thinks these three kinds of person, these three classes, originate. A reasoning part, a spirited part, and an appetitive part. 
those are the English terms that, that we've come down to. Right. But what this is ultimately about is uh, Plato, Socrates here, thinks that human desire, human love, and our capacities come in three basic forms. The end of book four uh, includes a very striking and philosophically rich analysis of different kinds of motivational conflict, cases where we're struggling whether to pursue something or to flee it, yeah. uh, whether to do something or to abstain from doing it. Uh, and the analyses and the cases that Socrates develops there uh, yield three different kinds of motivation, three basic kinds of love, uh, and three corresponding kinds of delight, which we'll get to later probably. Yeah. Um, a love of the truth, a love of honor or victory, and a love of pleasure, by which he means bodily pleasure. Each each part of the soul has its own kind of pleasure or its own kind of joy, but but with the appetitive part, Plato has in mind bodily pleasure, food and drink and sex, and also wealth, which is very tightly, the kind of wealth Plato has in mind is very tightly connected with those bodily kinds of enjoyment. Uh, think drinking parties, basically. Um, think of the opulent cups and couches that would be used at, at such drinking parties. Um, so food, drink, sex, and, and wealth. Yeah. Uh, conspicuous, conspicuous, uh, opulent wealth. Um, those are the three basic kinds of love and three basic kinds of object uh, for love, object of desire that, that Plato there envisions. Um, and so both in the soul and in the city, justice and the other cardinal virtues as well will be instantiated when each of three, these three parts, each of these three classes or parts of the soul, each of these three kinds of love are all rightly ordered with one another so that each part, each class is able to do its own work for the good of the whole, whether that whole be the soul or, or the city. And the contention of the Republic as a piece of psychology or study of the soul and as a piece of political thought is that each part will be best fulfilled when each is properly subordinated to the good of the whole. Mm -hmm. So that's the initial discussion, if you like, of the just city, of justice in the human being and in the political community, at which point Glaucon's ready to say, oh, well, it sounds like justice is the health of the soul, Socrates. And if that's right, then who in their right mind would want to live without health? No one would want to live with a sick body. How much less would we want to live with a sick soul? Um, but of course, that's not the whole story. What follows is, in books five through seven, um, a famous digression about initially the living arrangements that they've described in the just city. Um, Socrates has some things to say about how the rulers will live holding everything in common, which surprised Glaucon and Adamantus. Uh, and as a result, there's a digression which goes into further detail about these rulers, these famous philosopher kings, their living arrangements, their education, which leads us to the famous uh, metaphysical themes of, of the Republic. This is when we get the famous sun, line, and cave mm -hmm. trio of images that describe the structure of reality, uh, according to the Republic. And it's only then, after these central books, this, this digression, which seems like a sort of climax, but which is in fact a digression, these books five through seven, that we then get in books eight and nine to the final um, exposition and ranking of different kinds of constitution. And when I say constitution, you have to think 
political constitution, yes, but also constitution of soul. Yeah. And then in, in this exposition and ranking of different kinds of constitution in books eight and nine, you get a final judgment about which regime and which condition of the soul is most desirable. That's right. And in a moment, we'll turn to those two books, eight and nine. Uh, one last question about the Republic generally before we turn to those two. Uh, how should we read the book? You've been describing how Socrates describes this imaginary city, imaginary republic. Is the city as described the legitimate ideal for Socrates? He genuinely believes this is the best city, or is he being ironic? Is it just meant to be absurd? In my readings of the Republic um, over the years, I've gone back and forth about some of the concrete political proposals that uh, Plato has Socrates make in the Republic. Um, there are some which we might look back on and think very highly of Plato for. So, for example, uh, Plato has Socrates say that when it comes to men and women, there's nothing intrinsic to being a man or being a woman that makes them either either one more or less capable of virtue and wisdom. So that in this ideal regime, Plato thinks, men and women would equally be capable of, would equally be trained in pursuit of wisdom and in pursuit of this highest form of rule, provided that they have the right uh, souls for it, of yeah. course, which is a whole other question for Plato. Um, and we might look back uh, quite approvingly at this, although it would have scandalized Plato's contemporaries mm -hmm. at least as much as some other proposals, such as that the, these philosopher rulers will not have families, that they will hold all things in common, and that they will not make decisions for themselves about whom to pair up with and have children with, but rather those decisions will be left uh, to a kind of eugenics program, yeah. uh, to a sophisticated system by which, uh, Plato has Socrates say, uh, one can ensure that the right quality of souls will be inherited uh, in, in the descendants of the philosopher king so that the right preconditions for wisdom can be maintained in the city. All of that will, of course, rightly strike us as very alarming. Yeah. Um, the thought that we're going to maintain a ruling class by way of eugenics you know, distresses us modern readers, of course, and rightly so, I think. Um, and so maybe we want to say, we, we want to hold this at a distance and maybe not take so seriously some of these proposals. Um, I do think one common response has a point, which is that what motivates the whole republic is a defense of justice as a virtue in the individual human soul, and that is the ultimate aim of the overarching dialogue. But at the same time, I think that we should not run away from the thought that Plato is seriously proposing some things that make us uncomfortable. We should let Plato make us uncomfortable. Yeah. We should allow ourselves um, to recognize that Plato disagrees with modern sensibilities in many cases, um, and in some cases we rightly reject him. In other cases, to do with wisdom and virtue, maybe we should allow Plato to challenge us a little bit, but we should, we should be ready to entertain the thought that some of these proposals are meant seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I, we noted before we began recording that um, in many ways Plato's an admirer of Sparta, yeah. And some of these proposals to do with a, a very strict kind of common life um, are no doubt partly inspired by, by the Spartan regime. Um, and that suggests at least that these are some proposals that Plato, in the moment of writing the dialogue, uh, is taking seriously. Even if, as he puts it at the end of Book Nine, the, the regime 
that he constructs, the city and speech, uh, the Republic, um, is ultimately a kind of blueprint for the soul. Mm. He talks about this description of the Republic as a kind of city in the heavens to which we should look in, in regulating our own lives, in the pursuit of virtue and wisdom, in the way that a navigator would look to the heavens in, in charting the course for his ship. In examining this ideal republic drawn up by, by Socrates, uh, we have a question from Matt Frank, the associate director here at the Madison program. Matt Frank says this, Karl Popper, and one of the most influential interpretations of the republic in the 20th century, denounced Plato as a totalitarian whose vision of justice was of a closed society ruled by a self-perpetuating elite with absolute power, completely inimical, in Popper's view, to true justice and human freedom. And so Dr. Matt Frank wants to know, was Popper right or wrong? Good. Yes. Uh, that's another important question that we need to grapple with uh, as modern readers of the Republic, as readers that seek to gain something, to, that seek to profit from reading the Republic in, in the conduct of our own lives. Um, I think while the Republic certainly gives us a vision that's profoundly hierarchical, mm-hmm. um, that a regime in which obedience is required to, to an elite class, uh, which is not to be questioned, of course, um, nevertheless, if we're looking to form a view of Plato as a whole, Plato's overall political vision, that would be a one-sided take, I think. I think we, if we look to the laws, for example, and to another um, political dialogue, the statesman, um, we find another side to Plato, a side which also emphasizes ideas like the rule of law rather than the rule of an office holder, ideas like um, the view that a more perfect rule is rule by persuasion rather than by coercion. The idea that laws should have a preamble which justify the laws, which mm. manifest their rationa- rationale to those ruled by the laws so that they can uh, be informed about the rightful grounds for law so that they can then um, consent to the laws. These ideas balance out, I think, the one-sided portrait of, of Plato as uh, forerunner to totalitarianism. Yeah. There are places that... Um, Plato begins to develop ideas which we're maybe more familiar with from, with Aristotle, ideas that um, point to a kind of mixed regime uh, as being a more desirable way to lead our, our, our common life, yeah. one, one which balances the strengths and weaknesses of, of a pure aristocracy, of a pure oligarchy, and of a pure democracy, as, uh, as Aristotle will put it. Books eight and nine. Marcus, can you give us a plot overview? What's going on in these two books? Yes. Uh, so I once again prepared the way for this um, with my discussion of books two through seven. In books eight and nine, we've we've laid out all the pieces. We ha- we have this um, elaborate equipment, the uh, vision of the soul and of the city, composed of three parts: a truth-loving part, an honor-loving part, and a pleasure-loving mm-hmm. part. And these materials have enabled. Socrates and his conversation partners to con- construct a vision of an ideal regime, one which is characterized by justice, wisdom, courage, and moderation, one which is ruled by the truth and therefore fully attuned to the good. Hmm. We could say more about that, but I mention it only then to turn our attention to books eight and nine, which is where having used 
and developed these uh, conceptual tools, Socrates and Glaucon and Adamantus then set out a series of deteriorating regimes, both in the soul and in the regime, the political regime, that is. And having set out these regimes, in brief order, those are aristocracy in the sense that's on the surface of the Greek, rule by the best, that is to say, rule by the wise, aristocracy, timocracy, kind of rule by honor or rule by those who love honor most, oligarchy, rule by the few, which means rule by the wealthy few, democracy, which means rule by the people or rule by the many, and finally, tyranny. These five regimes are all developed on the basis of this tripartite psychology we've been describing, the, the psychology of reason, spirit, and appetite. And having developed and described these five regimes, Socrates and Glaucon then rank them, which is most desirable and which least, and which fall in between. And on the basis of this, then finally settle the question, should justice be preferred to injustice, even if we give justice a reputation for injustice and injustice a reputation for justice? Should justice be preferred? Is justice to be welcomed both for its intrinsic character and for its consequences? These sorts of questions get settled uh, in the closing pages of Book Nine. Okay, you've already given us these regimes or constitutions that um, Socrates lays out. Which of these regimes does America in the 21st century most closely resemble? I think the obvious answer is probably democratic, right? America is a democracy and we're very proud of it. But America in the 21st century seems to have striking parallels also to the oligarchic society that Socrates describes. What say you? That strikes me as very, um, very much on the money. I mean, this is a heavy question. Uh, which of these five regimes uh, does, do we, do we the United States most resemble today? Um, readers who've spent some time with Plato's description and diagnoses of these regimes will, will be able to tell very, very viscerally why this is a heavy question. But, but I think if we're to settle it in, in brief, um, if we're to take a first stab at it, at least, in brief, it's hard to resist noticing the oligarchic and, and democratic elements. Um, one of the notes that I'm most struck by on, on this most recent reading uh, in Plato's description of democracy is um, an unwillingness to recognize inequalities of any kind, even inequalities rooted in genuine merits, uh, out of an allergy to inequality as such, mm. um, out of an overarching regard for not only equality but also freedom. Um, the discussion of democracy is, I think, more ambivalent than uh, a first reading may reveal. Um, one thing that Socrates and Glaucon say in passing is that one lovely thing about democracy, as they're describing it, is that a philosopher may actually be able to last longer yeah. kind of tending his own garden under these democratic conditions, attempting to incarnate uh, the wise life, the good life, as best he can in his own surroundings. That, that may be able to last longer in democracy than in a, in a timarchy or in an oligarchy, as they're describing it. And yet, those conditions are there because 
in this ideal typology that they're describing, um, the democratic regime lets as many flowers bloom as possible and, and indeed um, is so concerned with freedom and we might even say license um, and is so unwilling to countenance any form of inequality whatsoever even those grounded on skill, competence, and merit and the like, um, that they're unwilling to countenance or, or to grapple with the thought that they ought to be guided by some conception. They ought to be guided by some overarching shared aim, which enables a richer form of common life possible. Um, I'll say more about that in a bit, but maybe, maybe I should stop there. This is America. Like I said, we're very proud of our democracy. Democracy is a good thing. We say is the we say you're wrong, Socrates. This city you've described is not ideal. Democracy is ideal. It's the only just system of government. What is the democracy, the democratic constitution that Socrates describes? What what are its markings? Yes. I've left out the most fundamental point to make about the democratic regime that Socrates here describes. Um, and again, it, it goes back to this tripartite psychology. Um, the democratic regime, the fourth of the five, is ruled by the appetitive part. So it's ruled by the pleasure-loving part. Uh, but we get a few more details and a few more distinctions in this discussion. Unlike oligarchy, which Socrates says is ruled by a desire for the necessary pleasures, so the wealth that's needed to sustain, uh, to sustain ourselves. Uh, democracy is ruled by unnecessary pleasures. They're still lawful pleasures, so they don't involve the kinds of extravagance and monstrous behavior that are going to characterize tyranny and, and the tyrannical soul. But they are unnecessary pleasures. So what this really means is a regime that's characterized by hobbyists, hmm. right? Uh, a regime where there's a, there's a very striking uh, little vignette that Socrates gives us where, you know, a person might play the flute in the morning a little bit and then dabble in gymnastic and then play at what he thinks is philosophy at some point. But throughout all of these various pleasure pursuits, um, both the democratic man and the democratic regime uh, are unable to commit themselves to a single vision of what they should give their lives over to. Um, and that, more than anything else, I think is the source of Plato's complaint. Mm. Um, he thinks that this lack of commitment and this lack of vision, this unwillingness to even consider the question of, of a good that can bind us together, not only does it cut us off from living that best life, which he thinks is the philosophical life, which we can quarrel about, of course, um, he thinks it also that this kind of dilettantism and this, this unwillingness to countenance the question of the good actually erodes the conditions that make common life possible. Hmm. And that's something that I feel very poignantly right now. I mean, of course, again, if we're talking about our common life today, we, we celebrate the idea that no one imposes a unified vision of the good on others. Um, however, there is something to the idea that if we become too allergic even to the question of the good, um, then we lose the ability to have those conversations about the good and about how to live our common life together, which are part of how we come to live a common life together. 
we all run off to our separate hobbies and to our own private conceptions of the good or private preferences uh, without considering what we ought to give ourselves over to in common. And there I think there's maybe still some teeth to what Plato has to say. Hmm. If, if this reticence or this unwillingness to think about excellence or, or to think about the good and to think about the implications of that question for our common life actually erodes um, the preconditions of, of civic friendship and trust um, that make a richer common life possible. Yeah. And that's something I'm still re- wrestling with. We get this ranking of the constitutions, and they sort of descend in goodness, but they also devolve one into the other. Mm. Um, so the democratic becomes oligarchic, the oligarchic becomes democratic, the, the democratic becomes tyrannical. If we're the democratic society, and we're going to take Socrates at his word, that means we're heading for tyranny. Not, I think, a comforting prospect to any listener. Let me ask you this. Are the constitutions a one-way street? That is to say that democracy inevitably devolves and ends up in tyranny. And if you're a democratic society, it may be in five years, 10 years, 50 years, but you will at some point become tyrannical. Is there a way to reverse this cycle? Yes. I Here I am more inclined to think that the sequence is a rhetorical device. Um, I I don't read Plato as that kind of determinist who would say that there are political and historical or indeed spiritual or psychological forces that make a single trajectory inevitable. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Plato's own day, there there is indeed flip-flopping between uh, democracy and tyranny, or at least in Plato's memory. He he, he knows that, um, you know, over the course of the Peloponnesian War, Athens does... uh, and in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War, I should say, there was a kind of flipping back and forth between democracy and tyranny. So it's not as though it's a single straight arrow. Um, where that leaves us in terms of the other kinds of constitutional transformation that might be possible is another matter. And Plato doesn't give us many of the tools to settle that question in detail. Yeah. But at least I think we can allow ourselves the, the negative verdict that, that this isn't inevitable that uh, one needn't despair of climbing back up the tree, so to speak. You know, I I was struck in in reading that. It brought to mind Lincoln's Lyceum Address, Mm. in which he talks about how mob rule undermines faith in the law, right? Mob rule is, is, it's democratic, right? It's, It's democratic in some way. There's no authority other than what the people there decide it is. And that will, Lincoln says, in much the same way Socrates says, lead to a tyrant, to a strong man. So perhaps we do have more to worry about. I I do think that he's very insightful about those elements in democratic regimes that make it particularly susceptible to tyranny. So I do think that there's a great deal to think about there, especially democracy as Plato would have known it, which does involve direct democratic rule. so there I do think that there, there's a lot for us to think about, a lot for us to to study and maybe worry about. Yeah. Um, but I think that those observations point us then back in the direction that Aristotle ran with, which is uh, the need for a mixed regime, the need for to draw on elements from a more oligarchic and a more aristocratic form of government so as 
to correct for these other weaknesses, which is, you know, always an art and always a work in progress. <laughs> right. Um, okay. We have the three parts of the soul, and you've mentioned them already. Socrates doesn't just give us these three parts. Well, you have the part of the soul that loves honor, the part of the soul that loves wisdom, and then the part of the soul that loves wealth, sex, food. He actually ranks them. Yes. Uh, so can you just tell us about that ranking? But then answer this. Can you actually rank these? I'll hand it over to you there. I myself, you won't be surprised to hear, think that this is one of the parts of the Republic we can definitely take and, and run with <laughs> and, and live with. Um, I, I do think that while, while we might balk at the very negative characterization that we sometimes get of the appetitive part, we might think that Plato isn't fully fair to human passions there. I do think he's exactly right about the idea that our love of the truth, reason as he puts it, uh, and our capacity to grasp the truth, or at least to inch our way towards the truth, ought to be in the driver's seat, so to speak, uh, in the soul. Um, not because I think that we should all run off and become full-time philosophers, although I think these questions belong to all of us, uh, but because the question, how should I live, and the accountability we have to ourselves and to others in recognizing that question, that's something that does send us back to care for the soul as a whole. Our, our sensitivity to that question uh, and our ability to make progress in answering that question, not just by ourselves, but in conversation with each other and with the greatest resources of the past, that capacity in us is, I think, the capacity best suited to rule the whole soul. Hmm. When, when we're considering the question what to do, already we know that we are in the business of looking for the best case, looking for the best reasons. The way to settle the question isn't simply to yield to the next impulse that comes your way, right? It's a question of arguments. It's a question of reasons, which again, I don't think means we should all go become philosophers or ethicists full time. Uh, but we always ought to remain open to and guided by this great question, the fundamental normative question, and the best answers that we can detect to that question. And to that degree, at least, I think, reason rightly rules. Marcus, we have time for one last question. And this question is, why these books? Right? We're, we're doing this, this series on the Platonic Dialogues. We can only choose so many dialogues. We have to do one on the Republic. We couldn't possibly do the entire Republic. So it makes sense to divvy it up. But we choose not the allegory of the cave not to focus on the theory of the forms, and instead to focus on these two books. And you suggest that these two books, books eight and nine, may be the climax of the dialogue. Why is that? This is, this is the great judgment of the different regimes and the different souls. Um, they, they get trotted out for us one after another in book eight and the start of book nine, like contestants in a game show. Um, and then they get judged. They get ranked. Um, and Plato, or rather Socrates and Glaucon themselves, trade on imagery from tragedian contest, rather uh, tragedy contests, yeah. the ancient competitions among the tragedians, and the way that they would be awarded their laurels with toasts to Zeus and so on. We also get imagery drawn from Olympian, or rather Olympic, um, wrestling competitions. You know, give me that 
uh, lock again and I'll throw you, Glaucon yeah, right, says to yeah. Socrates at some point. Um, there was this practice in uh, the Olympic wrestling competitions of the day uh, in which the victory was given to the one who could throw his, appointment, his opponent three times. And to throw one's op- opponent three times in a row without being thrown oneself was the highest kind of victory that a wrestler could win. And that's exactly what we see. We get these three tests at the end of Book Nine uh, in which the tyrannical life and the just life or the wise life get judged one, one against the other. And so although we rightly look at those central books with the cave and the line and the forms um, as a kind of climax, it's actually here in the maybe comparatively more modest and less sublime context of these different regimes that we get Socrates and Glaucon's answer to the question, should we be just or should we be unjust? We are all out of time, unfortunately. Our guest back with us and again back in person has been Marcus Gibson. We have been discussing books eight and nine of The Republic. Marcus, thanks so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. It's always a delight, Nino. Thank you. Well, there you have it, fellow Madisonians. Marcus Gibson, back with us to continue our voyage through the Platonic Dialogues. Of course, that was really only a sort of teaser of what is a very beautiful, challenging, and rewarding book. And I hope we were able to encourage you to pick it up and read The Republic for the first time or for the 101st. Either way, it was great to have you with us, and I hope you'll return for my next conversation with Marcus when we discuss Plato's Symposium. That's all for now, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.